There's a danger in our faith with familiarity. With having heard something enough that what is miraculous becomes ordinary, unexpected, even predictable. Whether you come to church very often or not, I imagine the story we're about to read is not one that you're completely unfamiliar with. My guess is very few of us would be sitting there going, I had no idea, that's what happened, what happens next? We're pretty familiar with the overall flow, but there's a danger in familiarity. So I want to challenge you today, each and every one of you, to not just follow the familiar words, but to listen, to picture these events in your mind, to imagine what it must have been like to be there, and to consider the implications if these events truly happen, of what it means for you and what it means for our world. So I invite you to listen to Luke's words from chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And this is what he says. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This would be the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph was also from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, watching over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are, or how we come in here today, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, friends, this is a familiar story, and there's gifts of familiarity, but there's also dangers with familiarity. 
Now, the gifts of familiarity are that when we come to this story, when we come to Christmas, when we come to uh, this holiday season in our lives, there's gifts of what's familiar. There's probably certain ideas or certain themes or, or certain feelings that, that go with this time of year that are wonderful and meaningful. Maybe it's the idea of love. Maybe it's the idea of generosity, of giving. Maybe it's the idea of family, of gathering, of, uh, of different things that we do. And all of those are good. All of those ideas, all of those themes, all of those uh, notions of what we associate with the holidays, love and peace and joy. But for a few minutes tonight, I want us to reflect on an idea that I believe is a part of this story that may feel a little unfamiliar. It might feel a little untraditional. And that is, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about disappointment. Disappointment at Christmas. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? <laughs> now, disappointment is something that might not be what you thought we would talk about coming in, but just hear me out here because I think there's something important and good for each and every one of us who gathers here. First off, let's define what we're talking about. Disappointment is what I would say is the gap between what you hope for in life and what you get in life, right? That gap is what we would call disappointment. For example, some of us, maybe a lot of us, are going to open Christmas presents in the morning. And a lot of us who are going to open Christmas presents are probably pretty excited about Christmas presents. You're probably hoping for this kind of gift on Christmas morning. And some of the gifts you're going to get are going to measure up to what you hope for. But let's all be honest, there are going to be certain gifts that you open tomorrow that are kind of right here, right? There's a gap between what you hope for on Christmas morning and the present you open. And you know that feeling when you open and go, thank you so much. I've wanted whatever this is for so long. Right? That gap between what you want and what you have in life is what I would call disappointment. And I think it's important that we talk about this because sociologists tell us that this sense of growing disappointment of a gap of what we want in life and what we feel our lives are is actually growing in our society. That there's more and more of a discontent of where my life is and where I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be here and yet here's where I feel it is. I wonder what that gap might look like for you. What do you come in here tonight feeling that gap in? For some of us, it may be our careers. We thought at this point in life we would be here, and yet we come in on Christmas and it feels like we're more here. And there's a gap between what we hope for and where we are. It might be in your marriage that there's a place that you're saying, this is where I thought we would be at this time in our life, and yet it feels like we're more here. It might be that I thought I was going to spend the holidays finally surrounded by family, and yet things have gone different. I was hoping for this, and yet I'm coming in here and it's feeling like this. It might be in retirement where my friends told me it was amazing and I've been looking forward and planning it for years and I thought it was going to be like this and yet it feels like I'm here. Every one of us in this room tonight, every one of us worshiping this night is aware of that gap. If we're honest, and most of us are going, no, 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 it's Christmas. We have two days that we don't have to talk about that. Two days that we just get to tune out and, and act like everything's okay. But I think this story has something more for us here. Again, Sociologists tell us that this gap is growing and that at the holidays we feel particularly aware of what our life maybe doesn't feel like or who we're not with or where that gap is of what we thought. 
We're going to have an interesting and a wonderful opportunity at this church coming up in a couple of months that we are going to be kicking off Lent with a speaker who's going to be here named David Zoll. And David Zoll is in Charlottesville, Virginia. He has written a book called Low Anthropology that we're going to be reading in small groups as we go through Lent. It's a wonderful book that is really insightful. We're going to read it in small groups and community and friendship. I'm so excited about this. But in this book, David Zoll talks a little bit about this kind of gap, this feeling that we might have. And, and here's what he says. He says, there's an unspoken sense that it is not normal to be sad or grieving or confused or angry or envious or lonely or barely hanging on. And this produces inordinate anguish. Social media is one catalyst of this in our modern world. A few times a day, whenever I crave distraction, I'll scroll through my feed to see what other people are up to. And what I observe is that they appear to be smiling and successful. They're engaged in exciting activities and traveling to exotic places. I observe this because that is what the images and information they post tell me. Gradually, I develop the impression that all my classmates from high school are doing well, that the baseline for marriages is fairly blissful, and that it's far more typical to be happy than to harbor deep-seated regrets. I may know that people tend not to air their doubts or confusion online, but because I never see these things, I can't help believing on some gut level that my peers don't experience them, at least not in the same proportion I do. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Or it's just me, and I'm talking to myself about this gap. Does anybody ever have that sense, that feeling? Do you know what that's like? I, I had somebody who shared with me the other day uh, about an experience like this. Uh, she gave me permission to share this, and she was talking about how with her family, they went on a new tradition this year because they looked online and saw another family who they know who went down to the Trail of Lights in Austin, and they said it looked amazing. The photographs they showed there were incredible. They went down there, their family and their teenagers, and they laughed the whole time in every picture they just laughed they had a ball their teenagers were never on their phones they were just holding hands and smiling and talking and they were drinking hot chocolate and eating chocolate in every picture and they never gained weight and things are just incredible for them and they wrote there that it was the greatest most special most magical night ever so they said, well, we need to go do that. We need to go experience the trail of lights in that way and see what it's like. And yet we decided to finally buy tickets and go down, but then half of our family felt like it was too cold and didn't want to go. But then the others said, no, that we need to go because it's disappointing if the other half let us down. So we didn't talk in the car ride going down, but we got there thinking it'd be better, but we couldn't find the right parking. And eventually we made our way in and the hot chocolate wasn't there. And we finally found some that was left over and it was cold and it wasn't really all that good. And I turned around and my kids are on their phones and not speaking to each other. And then half of them wanted to leave before because they were too cold. And the other half said, no, we wanted to stay. And so we finally just walked through separately. And we got back in the car at the end and no one spoke the entire drive home. <laughs> and what we do is we compare someone's carefully curated, branded image of themselves with our everyday life. And that gap feels real of what it feels like it should be versus what it is. What someone else is experiencing versus me. And the holidays 
are a time where we're ripe for that. The ways we even talk about the, the first Christmas story, the, the kind of ways that we depict it actually can, can contribute to this. It can seem like this romanticized version of the first Christmas. Does anybody have um, nativity sets that you put out? We have like in our house. Okay, good. All right, you guys are with me now. Uh, there are enough of you that have it. So we have nativity sets, and you have a nativity set. You kind of look, and Jesus is there, and Mary, and just Mary, like four and a half minutes after giving birth, is just kneeling serenely at the manger, and she's smiling with this sort of holy expression, and her perfect partner Joseph is kneeling as well, just in solidarity, and this wonderful little family that's there. That's what it was like, right? I mean, we sing about it in, in, in the carol, Away in a Manger. And I'm not bashing on Away in a Manger for you, Away in a Manger lovers, but I'm just saying that there's a verse that we sing where it says, remember, this? the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying. No crying he makes. Really? Have you ever seen an infant startled by a cow? Is that what the first Christmas was really like? Or maybe it was something more like this. I don't know if that's what it was really like, but my bet is it was closer to that than little Lord Jesus. No crying, no crying. Perfect family. It's important for us to see that this gap might be laced into the Christmas story. I mean, think about it. Do you think that Mary was really just in this place that was just serene as she, likely a teenager, is told that she and her third trimester has to travel hundred, uh, uh, days and days on the back of a donkey to go to a town, Bethlehem, she's never been to before, likely, and that she doesn't know anyone there? Do you think at an age and at a stage of her pregnancy where doctors here say that you can't travel at that point, do you think that she um, was at peace because a foreign emperor thousands of miles away said that she had to go, that there were no loopholes for pregnant people, and that he really didn't care if she died or her baby died on the way? you think what it was like as she left her mother, left the women in Nazareth who would have been able to shepherd her through the frightening and painful experience of childbirth? Or do you think there was a part of her in that moment that was going, this is what I pictured my family would be, this is what I pictured my life might be, and yet here's what it feels like this is turning into. And what about Joseph as he's leading that donkey? As he had imagined what his future would be like, he had had to make the courageous and faithful decision to, to go along with the wedding, and yet now, before the wedding takes place, he has to go not just in front of the people of Nazareth, he's already been through that of the rumors about what's happened, but now he has to go to the extended family in Bethlehem and repeat the story of why he's still getting married, given the situation. Do you think there was a part of Joseph that was going, when I pictured my family and my firstborn coming into the world, this is what I was picturing, and it feels like yet we're right here. Two of the most, I think, understated verses in the Bible, maybe in all of literature, are verses 6 and 7 of what we just read. Look at these again. These are some of the most well-known images of the Christmas story. But think about what goes into these two verses. 
While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Think about the number of hours that are being talked about here. Think about the amount of pain that's being talked about here. Think about what goes, I've had several women, and rightfully so, who have said, this was obviously written by a man. That's right, it's like, it's like it just came time for her to give birth, she had a baby, right? Like it just sounds, but think about what went into this. Think about what it was like for Mary as she's going through labor in a, in a, in a, a, a stable, and the only person there from what the text tells us is her fiance who has never been through this himself, and they don't really know each other very well. Imagine what that was like. It was not the picture she probably had of what her first child coming into the world would be like, and it wasn't for Joseph. Well, it was that gap between the way it's supposed to be and the way it is. That's part of the Christmas story. Just like it's part of your story and part of my story, the disappointment that we walk in here tonight with. And I want us to pay attention to that and to talk about this for a second for one critical, central reason. One thing that lies at the heart of why I think it's important that we not ignore this for holly and jolly and move on. And this is the reason it's important. Because in the midst of that gap between what we hoped for and what is, that's where we find God. That's where we find God. That's where we find Jesus. And I don't want to just move past the miracle of that statement. I didn't say that we found religion there. I didn't say that we found a set of rules or a set of doctrine or a set of dogma. And I'm not talking about some vanilla spirituality of feelings or energy from the universe or anything. We find a person. We find Jesus. We find God in that gap between what is hoped for and what is. And it's God who's at work in that difficult, disappointing time, redeeming and transforming that story so that 2,000 years later, we are celebrating it and singing about it today. Because God gets involved in those gaps and starts remaking and redeeming and reshaping and transforming broken, hurting, difficult places. And that is an essential part of the miracle of Christmas. And it's not just a part of Christmas as you think about it either. Think about all the way along Jesus' ministry. That gap still exists. That disappointment, that sense of this isn't how it's supposed to be is always a part of the Jesus movement. It's always a part of the Jesus story. For example, when Jesus starts to do his ministry, um, who does he do it with? Does he do it with the religious, righteous rule followers, the, the, the ones who have studied their whole lives to be God's people? No, he goes to the, the tax collectors and the and the prostitutes, and he goes to the blind and the lame and the crippled, the ones on the margins, the ones that people are ignoring, the ones that they are stepping over in the street and not paying. They're not the culture shapers. And when Jesus begins healing there and changing there and bringing life there and people's lives are being changed, the religious establishment looks at it and says, that's not how it's supposed to be done. We know what this is supposed to be and God's not living up to it. 
Or what about where we see Jesus starting this movement, uh, calling the apostles, uh, men and women that would go out and change the world? Who does he call? Those who have been through leadership institutes and have read all the books and know all this kind of stuff. No, he calls what the Bible says, ordinary women and men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And people look and go, no, that's not how you start a global movement. And yet Jesus gives their lives purpose and power within that, just as he can do for you and I on a daily basis. And they go out and they change the world. Jesus is in that gap where people are going, no, this is how it's supposed to be. And yet when we find reality in the midst of that, you find God at work. Or maybe most importantly, through the central act that we as Christians believe in human history on the cross. Where the Messiah is nailed there, hanging to die. And what do his disciples cry as they're running away? saving themselves. It's not supposed to be this way. The Jesus movement was supposed to go like this, not him dying on a cross, what we're seeing here. Of the many things that were experienced in that was a crushing sense of loss and disappointment of how things had turned out. And yet it is in that space that God is doing the most magnificent work of bringing salvation into this world, of promising that as we see in him that life triumphs over death and that we do not need to be scared of mortality as we go through this world, that love is a force that is stronger than hatred. And we see that lived out in the resurrection and it changes the fabric of the world, that God is in the gap between what we think should be and what is. And God's not leaving things there to stay the same, but God's changing it and breathing new life into it over and over and over again. And if you want to this night know where God is active and present and alive in your life today, go to those places of disappointment. Go to those places of questions. Go to those places of doubt. Go to those places that you're walking and you're going, it's not supposed to be this way. And I can tell you that the Lord is there changing, transforming, redeeming, reshaping, and that when you walk in here next year, you will not be in the same place you are today. And that is good news for us to hear. It says at the end of this passage that when Mary realizes all that's taking place, so much of which was not what she had planned or probably wanted or dreamed of, says that she does two things. Says she ponders these things and treasures these things. I wonder tonight if you and I might do the same. If you pondered for a moment that this truth is not just truth in the Christmas story, but it is true for you tonight. That God is in that place of disappointment, that God is in that place that you and I know exists in all of our lives. Which at some level is it's not supposed to be this way. And if you pondered what it would mean to believe that God is there, working, loving, redeeming. Because if you ponder that and claim that and really take that in, 
then you know what else you'll do? Like Mary, you'll treasure it. You'll treasure Christmas and what it means, both in the familiar themes and the most surprising, unfamiliar ways where we see how amazing God's grace is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would meet us in that gap place in each of our lives. Fill us with a hope tonight that you don't just leave your people there. May we treasure that promise to us that Christmas represents. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.